I call it transcendence. Please. Transcendence. I call it transcendence. Side trance, hard trance, epic trance, acid trance, deep trance, hard dance, breakbeat. Every Sunday at 10 p.m. to midnight. Hosted by DJ Smiley Mike and DJ Caddyshack. Listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam speaking Musqueam people. the word jazz means many different things to many different people. So check out the real deal on The Jazz Show at CITR 101.9 FM or CITR.ca for live streaming. Yours truly, Gavin Walker, is your host and I guarantee the straight goods of three hours of jazz at its finest. The jazz feature that focuses on a concept, an album, or an individual artist will be heard at the beginning of the show every Monday night right at 9 p.m. after our opening theme and announcement. So come on by and give your ears a musical workout, 9 p.m. Mondays. Don't miss it. By the way, this is somebody's favorite show. Hi, Dan Shakespeare here. You know, for most of the stuff that I play, you probably think that I'm much older. But you know what? Most of you are probably way off because I'm only 23 years old. Tune in to the Shakespeare Show between noon and 1 p.m. on Wednesdays. It's songs from before the 1920s to alternative stuff today. Plus jokes and riddles. All sorts of fun stuff. Just put any, put any of it on your iTunes if you need to. Pretty soon it'll be coming out on it'll be coming out on albums. 
Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news, as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca. Good afternoon. You are tuned into the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, and it is Wednesday, June the third. Uh, today we've got a super packed show. We've got an interview with uh, the artistic director with Dances for Small uh, for a Small Stage. Christine will be bringing us that a little bit later in the show. Um, John Q, host of Q It Up, will be here soon. We also have a phone interview with Esther Huang, who is the, um, she is a violinist um, of the age of 18, recently accepted into Juilliard, playing with Kerner Quartet, um, and lots more in the show. But we also, today's show marks the triumphant return of Rohit. <laughs> Hello, what's up? <laughs> welcome uh, welcome back to, to, to the Arts Report. Oh, it's good to be back, man. Thank you for having me back, Jake. Anytime. All anytime. right. <laughs> no. I said that like anytime, like you can come <laughs> down, man. I need that, need that extra hand. No, it's all good. Um, you know, this, is, this has been the show that uh, got me into CITR, got me more involved. So I always have a special place in my heart for it, you know? Of course, and as do you for this show. The the collective heart of this show has <laughs> Thank you, Jake. space for, for you. <laughs> um, and you're, um, you're doing another show in the summer as well. Yeah, um, I'm doing a show called Soul Sandwich. And uh, in that show, I basically took over the, host, uh, the former host, um, Ola, who is uh, an excellent uh, host of that show. But uh, he had to go away for the summer. He's visiting family in Nigeria, so... I'm like, hey, man, I'll take on the responsibility. And it's a great opportunity because basically the show is eclectic, which means I can play music of various genres, very diverse genres. So I'll have everything from hip-hop to jazz to like um, an indie rock song all in the mix of that hour, you know. So it allows me a lot of freedom. I think if you look at uh, Discorder and look at the shows at CITR, I think 30% are listed as eclectic. Yeah, it, it's, it's, some might say it's a cop-out to do an eclectic <laughs> show because it's like, hey, man, it just makes, you, uh, it makes your life that much easier. Well, I think it, it's not necessarily the case because you still want your playlist to flow. You, know? you still want some kind of consistency to it. So it's about finding like a theme, I feel, and sticking with that. So. So hey, if people like doing eclectic, let them do it. Is what that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> I think I think that that is good advice. Uh, well, we're gonna jump in now with a little bit of eclectic music, some classical music, some Tchaikovsky. Um, and we will shortly have Esther Huang on the phone with us. So this is um, this is the fourth movement. It's the Allegro Vivace from Tchaikovsky's Souvenir de Florence. Thank you. 
The Corner Quartet closes their 2014-2015 season this uh, with Summer Serenade this Sunday, June 7th at the Vancouver Academy of Music's Kerner Recital Hall. The program celebrates the summer months and features two rising stars, Esther Wang um, on violin and Trisha Du on cello. Um, they are 18 and 19 years of age, respectively. Both musicians are part of Vancouver Academy of Music's Rising Star Mentorship Program and have appearances and scholarships at some of the world's top music institutions. This is their second appearance with the Corner Quartet. 
Um, Esther Huang began studying violin at the age of three. She regularly performs with organizations such as the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, um, the Vancouver Metropolitan Orchestra, and the Vancouver Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, she recently was accepted into the Bachelor of Music program at Juilliard in uh, New York City. In 2014, Esther was the first violinist of the Forza Quartet, which won first place in the national round of the Federation of Canadian Music Festivals. And, um, and Esther joins us over the phone now. Esther, welcome to, uh, welcome to the Arts Report. Hi! Nice to meet you. Well, thank you for, for joining us. How, how are you doing today? We're good. How are you? We're, we're doing well here. Yeah, doing great. Thanks for coming on. Uh, well, well, first of all, congratulations on being accepted into Juilliard. Well, thank you. <laughs> when uh, when did you find out? When did I find out? Um, May first. I found out on May first. And, and do you remember wh- what happened? What what it what what it was like? Well, it was at first it was really like unbelievable. I was shocked, and it didn't feel like it was real life, but. Um, I'm really grateful that I was given this opportunity and looking forward to exhibition work. Tell us about working with um, with Corner Quartet. Well, the Corner Quartet, they consist of um, Yosef, Jason, Nick, and Emily, and they're actually my mentors. Um, they're a very uh, reputable quartet, and they're in the Vancouver Academy of Music. And so you've been playing the violin since um, since the age of three. What is what's your relationship like with that instrument, with the violin? Oh well, to sum it up, best way would say um, the violin is like my best friend, my lifelong partner for sure. Um, it's always been with me through the happiest moments of my life and the saddest moments of my life. Um, it, definitely has an important value for me. My question is, Esther, did you always have a, a positive relationship with the violin, or was there moments when you were feeling, oh my god, this is getting intense, the pressure? Because uh, as a person who's played the violin myself, it was kind of uh, hard to stick with. My parents were putting a lot of pressure sometimes, and I ended up giving it up, <laughs> but that's probably a fault of my own. So what, what made you stick through? Well, there have and, you know, obviously really positive moments, but to be honest, there are those times when you sometimes do feel stressed, especially during your high school years when you have to balance between academics and violence, and you're stuck in a situation where you have to choose one or the other. Um, but since I started at a really young age, and I've always enjoyed playing the violin, I Ever since I was young, I already dedicated my life to this lifelong journey. So, for me, it was easier to make this decision. To, to stick with it. Um, what sort of... I mean, you, you your resume includes a lot of classical music and a lot of classical music from an early age. Is that the music that you... Um, that you that you go to on, on a regular day? What What is... What's on your iPod? It's on my iPod. Um, Our phone nowadays. Yeah, <laughs> iPhone. <laughs> to be honest, I I have classical music that I'm creating. So I also have some K-pop music. Definitely, yeah. Guilty pleasure. Um, 
I don't think you have to feel guilty no, about that. No, yeah, no guilt. No the, guilt. The show that leads up to the arts report is um, Asian Wave 101, and we get a lot of awesome K-pop that he introduces oh, us to. You gotta, yeah, you gotta listen to that one. So, yeah, we know, we know about it. <laughs> okay, that's good. Yeah, and like listening to a lot of, um, you know, like Beyonce is one of my favorites, but definitely classic music is part of the mix in there. Yeah, uh, and a mix uh, of a few things. <laughs> so you, you've you got a, a really impressive resume. I think that was the longest intros I've read off because it, <laughs> there were just so many things to 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 read. But what are you the most proud of of your musical career? What am I the most proud of? That's right. I'm just really proud that I've been able to get this far um, in this journey because it does require a lot of dedication and sacrifice. And I'm really proud of myself to be able to stick and persevere in this profession and to get to, to this point. Can you tell us a little bit about the Vancouver Academy of Music's Rising Star um, Mentorship Program? Well, um, so the Vancouver Academy of Music, uh, they train young musicians, and it is a very... Intensive, but very, um, very personal. Um, well, there's a lot of communication between the mentors for sure, and there's a lot of great musicians. For example, Trisha Du, who's the cellist who's going to be performing with me. She's one of my closest friends, and we're actually in a piano trio together. So yeah, there's a lot of um, intensive training there. I wanted to ask you about Trisha because she's another uh, rising star with, with similar, I mean, she'd probably have a, a similar bio to read out. Um, she will be at the um, performance, or performing with the Corner Quartet with you on the cello, but um, tell us tell us about Trisha Duke. Trisha, um, <laughs> she's um, a very bright person, very great cellist. Um, she's one of my closest friends. I mean, is there Specific you want to know about her? Well, what's it like uh, working with her? Oh, um, it is our, our rehearsals that we have. We're piano trio because we're in a piano trio together. It's sometimes you know ninety percent laughing and then ten percent working because we always enjoy each other's company and it's just really fun. Are the musical minds synced up? Like, do you guys just riff on each other? Like, improvise? Uh, or the yeah, how how natural is the chemistry between you guys when you play? Um, it is really natural, but uh, sometimes it is difficult to find other musicians that match your chemistry. Mm-hmm. Trisha is an exception. She ever since I met her, I actually met her in Hong Kong. Um, we became best friends right away. So it was really easy. It was meant to be the destiny. <laughs> musical friendship um, and so you've been playing the violin since the age of three and where you're you're heading over to, to Juilliard I can imagine what do you what are your, some of your goals uh, goals the long um, term yeah let me think. Um, I'm just really excited to be able to be in an environment where there's so much um, much things going on, you know, whether it's Broadway, whether it's watching classical music. Um, I have a lot of personal goals when I go to Juilliard. Um, 
no matter what, I always want to do my best and always strive for doing that. So I'll work really hard there. Awesome. And um, so you've performed your... The, this is going to close out the Corner Quartet's um, Summer Serenade. Uh, you are performing Tchaikovsky, a little bit of what we heard earlier, the, the Souvenir de Florence. Um, what's that piece like? It, well, the first word that comes to my mind is that it's a very long work. It is um, around 40 minutes, and there's four movements. There are six members um, playing different parts each. It's very complex, uh, three grand, and it's very beautiful, though. The melodic lines are very beautiful. There's a lot of, you know, rushing scenes, and they're very cute. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us, Esther. Uh, and we're going to make sure that we tell the people uh, we'll share the news about uh, the Kerner Quartet's uh, final performance of the summer. That's right. That is this Sunday, June 7th, at the Vancouver Academy of Music's Kerner, uh, fittingly titled Kerner Recital Hall. Um, and Esther, best of luck with everything in the future, and, and congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to leave you now with just a little bit of that, uh, the final moments of that music that you will hear this Sunday. Small Stage Canada takes place today and tomorrow at the Emerald in Vancouver at 8 p.m. Um, the piece is styled after the infamous 1920s-era Weimar Cabaret and uses dance to offer a no-holds-barred comment on Canada's political climate. Our dance... Oh, pardon me. Um, this performance leads up to uh, the most ambitious undertaking Dances for a Small Stage has done in over 10 years, which is a performance at Ottawa's 2015 Magnetic North Theatre Festival. Our dance and theatre correspondent Christine Kim sat down with director Julie, er, artistic director Julianne Saran to talk about the performance and what a growing national recognition means for local dancers. 
Hello, arts reporter listeners. My name is Christine Kim, and today we are here with Julianne Saroyan, the artistic producer of Move End. She co-founded Move End. She has worked with several uh, famous Canadian dancers, um, along with Ballet BC. And she's done a degree with dance and technical theater at the York University. It's my pleasure to be interviewing her today for the upcoming showcase that they're going to do at the 2015 Magnetic North Theatre Festival. Julianne, can you tell me a bit about the piece that you've already put together for this festival? Well, it's in progress, actually. We're going to do an avant-premiere, which means before the premiere, and we're going to do working excerpts at, uh, at the Emerald Room in Chinatown, the 2nd through 4th of June. So before we go to the festival, we're going to put, we're going to put the framework of the show together in Vancouver. And, um, and then we're going to add people from around the country that will join us in, in Ottawa when we, when we finally put together the show there and uh, perform it on the 9th and the 10th of June. Right, so the nine dancers that you have already, the nine names that um, I found on the press release, who are from all over Canada. Well, um, actually there's seven from Vancouver only, and then there's a total of 15 from other parts of the country. So we add eight more from other places, but the seven from Vancouver are providing that framework that we're talking about. And how was it finding these dancers? What kind of avenues did you search for, and what were you really looking for? Well, actually, I know them all. So I know them from various parts of my life. When I was a student at York, one of them is my teacher from York University. And the people coming from Halifax, I know her. She used to live out here and performed in a small stage show about 10 years ago. And the guy from Montreal, he's a, quite a famous dancer. He trained at the Paris Opera Ballet. And he works with Louise Le Cavalier now, another quite infamous Canadian Um, dancer. So people from all over the place, I collect them. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that actually it's not just dance, there's a little bit of theater and a little bit of music involved. And I guess I know that your background as well is dance and theater. And so one of my questions was, in what ways have you found that these two fields of the performing arts do or don't intertwine? I think there, it's a symbiotic relationship between all performing arts, actually, between music, dance, and theater. And this show really aims to sort of make that point, that, that they're all connected, that we use elements of everything, um, that we're always mixing things, maybe in different ways, that our priority is dance, but we're using our theatrical use of our body to make interface with music and to create a point of the whole piece that's going to... And, like, each little thing is a piece that makes the whole thing really exciting and comes together really well at the end. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we're going to just use everything we got in our toolbox. (laughs) As you were just touching about that, I saw that this piece is really also very um, politically charged and styled after... Weimar Cabaret, which is an era of very liberal political thought in Germany. Why add that element into this piece and how important is that element um, to the avant premiere that you guys are going to be showing? Well, um, I spent some time in Weimar in Germany and um, what I was really struck by was how art gets created 
and how we um, actually it's a privilege to use our our artistic voices and it's our and it's our job as artists to comment about what we're seeing going on around us and that particular style of cabaret is very stylized as you said um, but it pointed out things that were happening or starting to happen in Germany leading up to a big huge revolution with you know with Hitler and, and those days but but really, you know, we have questions as Canadians that are being glossed over, that are, you know, what happened to the penny? Where is it? Where'd it go? It's not a, it's not a legal tender anymore, or is it? But we pay, you know, there's a margin of pennies that, we, that are invisible now, but where does all that, that money go? And so these are questions that the artists are asking themselves as well, like how do you deal with the, you know, as a character, Billy Marchensky is exploring being the last penny. What does it feel like to be the last penny? You know, we have these things, you know, our grandparents or our aunts and uncles. My dad used to have a penny collection. And, and you know, those, are they just pieces of metal now? Who knows? So, you know, we have to ask these questions as Canadians as well. What does it mean? What are we, what are, what does our future look like? if we don't start to comment on what's going on around us in a meaningful way, not just have a, like a rally once in a while and pretend we're doing something, but what if we address these things in our, in our everyday lives? My other question about the show is, with these political motivations and all these different styles of dances, what do you really hope that the audience will take away from the show after they leave? I hope that people are left with a sense of what Canada could mean if what Canada where we can go together as Canadians and you know a lot of that is you know using a different voice we're not you know we're we're young artists here we're not um, normally produced by the National Art Center <laughs> so it's quite an honor to be you know have this other voice come in at, to our nation's capital and 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 take that on as a, a responsibility to comment on things that, you know, we don't know what, what we're really commenting on, <laughs> but maybe we're going to comment on, um, we're, well, we're certainly within the, the shadow of the parliament buildings at the National Arts Centre, so we have to be careful about what we say but, and clear about what we say. So we're still creating, who knows where it will go, but I hope that people are left with, wow, just a sense of um, thought, thinking, that they're going to think about whatever, but that they're also going to be entertained and have fun at the show and not be bashed over ahead by a political statement. So, <laughs> yeah. Seeing as you just have such a rich background in dance, I was wondering if you could comment on some of the common struggles, but also the common rewards that a young dancer looking to pursue a career in this field kind of faces especially in Canada or maybe even specifically Vancouver well I think it's you know we're, we're living in a time right now where the possibilities are endless and I think it's really exciting to see where we can go and where we can grow into different places and I think that you know as young artists my best advice is to keep going keep exploring don't just keep settling for one answer there's never one answer there's like 45,000 different answers 
and you know we have wonderful things like the internet now where you can watch up what's going on in other parts of the world in other parts of Canada even we're not even you know so not to remain so local with your art that you can really reach out into that big huge world <laughs> have you found that the dance community across Canada is quite closely knit no, actually, it's not. It's not closely knit at all. Lots of people don't have connections to other places. I, I, I used to tour a lot with Ballet BC or Crystal Pipe, and I, and I really found that we don't actually know what's going on in the dance community in Calgary or in Toronto, that it's very stylized and very different from what we're doing in, in other parts of Canada. And, and, that's, and that's another reason why I felt like it was really important to choose different things from around Canada and bring it all together and it's pretty risky but it's also quite rewarding that you know that um, Sarah Coffin is the name of the woman in Halifax that she she her community and her audience is very different from our Vancouver audience and what she's exploring is very different um, from what we're doing out here and so that's that's really exciting too explore all those things. Mm -hmm. Has it been difficult? Were there many clashes between the styles and was it difficult to kind of work together? Nope, you just find a way. I mean, that's why we're all creative artists. So we're we're going to find a solution. I think that's what creation is, solution finding. So... <laughs> I guess just moving in a little bit more on Move Ent, I saw on your biography and the website that you have a passion with sharing dance with everybody, especially regular people. So I was wondering, um, how has that shaped what Move Ent produces, um, how Move Ent has grown in the past years? Well, for me, um, I come I come from a little town in Ontario. My dad worked at Ontario Hydro. He was a machinist, and he was the one, and my mom was a nurse. And I feel like they really taught me um, what be sharing and what um, my art was and how those things were connected together. So I always think of my dad when I'm making shows, like... Does my dad want to see hip-hop? I don't know. But does he want to see ballet? Yeah, he grew up watching me dance. So my dad, like, why wouldn't I want my dad to pay 20 bucks to come to my show? And that that's about not making art too complicated. About I mean, of course it's complicated, but it's also, you know, it also speaks to accessibility like that. Everybody can enjoy Things, no matter what walk of life you come from and and that's really important to me you know I want the bus drivers to come to my shows <laughs> I, want, I want people who see you know I see dance everywhere like you know people dancing down the street so I like to I like I like to think about that when I'm making shows and how to connect with people do you think that contemporary dance has kind of moved so far into the modernity or the, the more kind of weird, um, less classical styles that it's hard for ordinary people to get involved? Well, I think that you have to remember what contemporary means. <laughs> and um, people are, I think, misusing the word contemporary, actually, because I see contemporary dance as urban street dance. To me, that's contemporary. I see contemporary dance in, um, I 
there's lots of other forms of contemporary dance, lots of them. And, and when you only pigeonhole modern dance as contemporary dance, yeah, I can see how that gets a little... Um, it's, it's risky. <laughs> and it's a particular style of contemporary dance, but it's not the only style. And so... You know, there's lots of forms of yeah. I, in a in a sh in a show that I had a few months ago, um, I had contemporary Indian dance. So there's other movements of contemporary dance, not just the modern one that you're talking about. I think, or that you're referring to. So I challenge you what that word actually means, though. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I was wondering if you could comment um, for our listeners, give us a little sneak peek on Move Ent and Dances for a Small Stage series. What kind of pieces are you guys working on? Yeah, we're traveling further and further down the rabbit hole, I guess, into collaborations with music and dancers. And so in that, in you know, I've already started, I guess, that level of investigation, but but certainly supporting that on a, on a, in a more meaningful way is what's coming up, that we're going to start, we're going to have a lab in the summertime with a whole bunch of musicians and a whole bunch of dance artists and throw them in a room, and, and we have three shows coming up in the fall. That sounds really exciting. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could shed a little bit more light on how you get different young dancers in Vancouver to come, I guess, display their work or even get funded um, through your uh, organization? I guess I'm always on the look for new stuff, new talent. I love when people come and tell me what they're doing and getting to know what's happening and then I'm able to connect it with the projects that I have planned for the future. So I, I love hearing from people and understanding what their work's about. I love seeing and watching shows, and so that's an important development process. In terms of funding, I mean, my, my role in the funding world is that I'm looking for new talent and giving them a place to showcase their work and helping them with guidance and, and giving them artistic tasks to address in their work and to give them space to rehearse, give them space to perform getting funding these days is based off that. Could you give us um, final words on premiere of uh, the show, the piece that you guys are working on right now for the Magnetic North Theatre Festival? Yeah, well, actually this, um, this show, what's going to actually happen is we're going to rehearse during the afternoons and, and build, and probably it's going to be a different show every night. We're going to be in progress. We're going to try different things out. Do notes. I'm going to ask for feedback from the audience. So this, this the avant premiere is really a develop, a, a secondary development stage from the between like where they create in the in the rehearsal hall, and then testing it in front of the audience. Like it's a test audience. That's how we're looking at it right now. And and in a in a meaningful way where we're going to welcome comments. It's going to change how what we do the next night perhaps. It's definitely going to help shape our show and I think it's a really important stage in the process like taking time to try things out in front of an audience, see how it makes them feel or react. So that's really our goal for the Avon premiere is experimenting and then using it as a launching pad to go to Ottawa to use it as a, you know, a tool to make our work better. 
It's not, it sounds very interactive, but not in a scripted sort of way. Yeah. It sounds like it's going to be a memorable show. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess before we end off the interview, would you like to just remind our viewers on when this avant premiere is, where it is, and where they can get tickets? Oh, yes, yes. So, um, it's the 2nd through 4th of June. It's at the Emerald Room in Chinatown. 8 o'clock. And people can get tickets at Eventbrite. Yeah, or they, you can go to my website, which is smallstage.ca, and there's a click off that. So, <laughs> Well, thank you so much for giving um, me and our listeners the time. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Christine Kim, who brought us a conversation with the artistic director of Dances for a Small Stage. Uh, welcome back to the Arts Report. You are tuned into CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, and we are broadcasting to you live from unceded Musqueam territory out at UBC campus. And next up, we have um, one of our newest in, um, newest arts reporters, uh, Jacob Med. Jacob Medvedev. I'm not going to try and... <laughs> Medvedev. Medvedev. Close enough, close okay. enough. Right, thank you for your patience with my pronunciation <laughs> of your name. That's okay. Uh, so you went to, um, you, well, you went to a, a concert. Yeah. So um, a couple of weeks back, I got to go see the Vox Umana Chamber Choir. And so I wrote up a little bit of a review, and I'll present it to you guys right now. So thank you for having me, and thank you for all the listeners around the world for joining us. So here we go. The Vox Humana Chamber Choir was established in 2002 in Victoria. Since then, it has become a well-recognized name of the Victoria music scene. The ensemble of 24 singers covers music from distinct areas and eras, but Vox Humana has really found its niche in performing newer music, especially that of more contemporary Canadian composers such as Jeff Enns. The conductor, Mr. Brian Wismath, has worked with ensembles and institutions such as the Linden Singers of Victoria, the School of Music of the University of Victoria, and others. Mr. Wismath has certainly developed a rich musical palette. So what happens when you take this kind of conductor and combine him with a youthful ensemble? On May 24th, I had a chance to see Vox Amanda's performance, entitled Soundwaves, at the Holy Trinity Anglican Church. The performance was aptly named, as shortly after the choral group, along with its conductor, appeared on stage, the halls and domes of the church were filled with sounds. What the title left out, however, was emphasis on the beauty of the choir's execution and the cohesiveness of these sound waves. The performance was strong on several levels. The demeanor of all performers was that of consummate professionalism, dressed to the nines and with every movement in undeniable synchronization. The timing of the vocal layering and solo performances was executed masterfully, the solos by Zulfikar Nathu in the performance of Kevin Siegfried's Shaker Songs, Robert Fraser in Northern Lights, and Michael Sasgis and Olivia Selig in Canticum Calamitatis Maritimae were strong showings. The selection of pieces for this particular program was also very tasteful, covering broad geography from the United States and Canada all the way to Latvia, symbolic of not only the diversity of the ensemble itself, but as Canada as a whole. The choral arrangements were also executed deftly. On Northern Lights, composed by Eric Zessenveld, the singing came from different sections and intervals, producing the echo-like, ethereal quality of, well, the Northern Lights. In this way, the music came to life before the audience, creating a euphoric and trance-like atmosphere. Later, on Canticum Calamitatis Maritimae, the ensemble filled the building with whispers, layering staccato notes with more fluid melodies, bringing to life the cacophony of a shipwreck. 
Soundwaves by Vox Humana Chamber Choir was a terrific performance. The ensemble displayed great range in both influence and subject matter and executed the pieces with grace. This little group from Victoria managed to remind the audience that even without any physical musical instruments, we still have the capacity to make brilliant music with our voices. So stay on the lookout for more local performances by the Vox Humana Chamber Choir. Oh, Jacob, thanks very much. Thank you. That was a, that was a great review. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It was a great performance. How, how many languages do you speak, just uh, out of curiosity? I speak three. Three, because your pronunciation in seemingly very different languages is, is pretty strong. I just, I think I messed up. I think one of them was in Latin. I tried to, tried to do it justice, but I think I butchered it. It's all, it's all good, though. Well, appreciate that review, and our listeners will be uh, keeping an ear out for you in the next um, coming weeks and months. Sounds good. I look forward to contributing to the show. Thank you, and you'll be back later with a couple uh, events for our local event calendar. Certainly. All right, next up we have John Q, host of Q It Up on CITR 101.9, also our local madmen. Um, our, our <laughs> I've never seen an episode of that show before in my I life. Actually, I haven't either, but you, I think no, you make good. all of our ads, so I'm going to call you our... I used to, but someone else has taken over that position, actually. Alex. I, Sarah I, Davis. I guess so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, also, Rohit was turning his mic towards me, and I, I'm a bit confused by that because I, I like his input on this as well. Uh, but, uh, well, yeah, no, yeah well, no, thank, you, thank you for having me on. Any, any time. Um, so tell us about um, art. <laughs> uh, well, you spell it backwards, it spells out tra. Uh, I just noticed that the other day, actually. It's really uh, pretty cool if you think about it. No, uh, so uh, a, a few weeks ago, just two days before my birthday, actually, uh, I went to the Western Front for a sound play uh, from Rana Hamada, who's an artist based out of Rotterdam. She was born in Lebanon, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where a lot of her uh, cultural knowledge is based in. A lot of what the work she is doing is based in, but she is currently as a living individual based out of Rotterdam. And uh, her exhibition right now, in terms of like uh, the actual constructed art, the constructed objects, is on display currently at the Western Front, which is, uh, where exactly is the Western Front again? I would say that it's... It's right off Kingsway and Maine. Yeah, I'd say about approximately 7th and um, Scotia or Mm -hmm. something. But essentially, if you... Um, start at Budgie's Burrito. It's in a, a... And, of course, you'd always start at Budgie's Burrito. Yeah, it's like a three-minute <laughs> three, three minute radius due east. So. <laughs> three-minute radius. Yeah. Nah, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, that's... Uh, that her In terms of the artifacts of her work, because the sound play was just a one-time thing, uh, those artifacts are still at the Western Front, and I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, I'm not too well-versed in contemporary conceptual... Uh, well, contemporary art period, the contemporary world. Uh, so I couldn't tell you really any close analog. Something I think might uh, be reminiscent of her work is a more literal Basquiat in terms of how she's drawing maps, mind maps, connecting cultural and political and poetic conceptions and mythological conceptions and identifying them in real political movements, uh, spe- specifically now pertaining to uh, the linkages between Syria and Lebanon especially with the large amount of Syrian refugees flooding into Lebanon, but also Hezbollah having a very strong base in southern Lebanon especially, and what that has to do 
with these people coming in now who are refugees from a government who has received a great deal of aid from uh, Hezbollah. And her play, uh, which is entitled, Can You Make a Pet of Him Like a Bird or Put Him on a Leash for Your Girls? And I can't delve too much into what that title really means uh, with time permitted. Uh, her play. Can, can you give us the title one more time? Just to Can You sure. Make a Pet of Him Like a Bird or Put Him on a Leash for Your Girls? And it's actually the second part of another play. I have the script here. The Western Front sent it over to me. Uh, but maybe I can see what it is here. Uh, the, the name of the play itself. I think that's the name of the greater project. And the name of the play that she performed was Can You Pull In An Actor With A Fish Hook Or Tie Down His Tongue With A Rope? Uh, and it's just these ideas about physicality, like the bridge between the theater and then physical action, actual action. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that her performance, her sound play, is sort of conceptualized as a redeployment of the Shiite ritual of Ashura, particularly as it is practiced in rural areas, in very devout areas, uh, where the practice of Ashura, which is uh, the ritual mourning for the death and martyrdom of Ali's son Hussein at the Battle of Karbala, I believe, when the overwhelming forces of the caliphate, the Sunni caliphate, uh, came down upon him and his family and they were all killed and all of his companions were killed in a totally brutal one-sided fight uh, where in those areas where the mourning for Hussein actually becomes physically embodied and and people you've probably seen a picture of this before this is where the actual scarification comes in so people will become so overwhelmed with grief that they'll actually begin slashing open their foreheads and, you know it's all cosmetic wounds but you know they'll, they'll slash their foreheads open and like start letting their blood out and start uh just mourning in a very visceral and primal way and and that's her identification of how this like concept and symbol of oppression becomes realized sort of in the real world and also how oppression is kind of redeployed in other ways and, and how like Hezbollah is an institution which is many would say is marginalized and represents many marginalized groups especially in Israel for example or Palestine rather uh, but at the same time is itself an oppressive group and how these various groups sort of lay claim to being oppressed and how a lot of those groups have this conception of oppression from that originary point in Hussein's death. And of course, Ashura again, which is this uh, bridging between the metaphorical and the figurative into the real. And there's a lot of, she talks a lot about Sun Ra, uh, the famous jazz musician Sun Ra, uh, who had an entire cosmology about sort of liberating his people, specifically black people, from the real from the real world in which there would never be a place for black people because the odds are just too stacked against them so you have to find like a sort of fiction that would accommodate those who are oppressed and for Sun Ra this fiction had to do with outer space and cosmology and like science fiction and you know at the end of space is the place he takes all the black people onto a spaceship and then they fly off and then the earth blows up unfortunately for everyone else <laughs> the earth blows up I mean it's not literal but sadly yeah, yeah. uh but yes, and so for her during the actual sound play, which is very drony, very experimental, there's this one artist uh, who is a vocalist. Uh, I think she's also based in Rotterdam, Caroline Daesh. 
and every sound in the play is taken from her voice, but it's all stretched out and really? like. Yeah, absolutely. And it's all the frequencies are crunched and it's layered on top. And it's just, it's made into beats and it's made into drones. And just this very, like, again, like the voice, the human voice extending itself in the act of ritual into something more spiritual and something more, like, uh, wor- like worldly, maybe mm-hmm. would be the word. I'm not sure. Uh, and she who is and i think it's again it's in the nascent stages so currently she is developing it to be an actual sound play that'll be performed at theaters uh but for this it was just performed by her predominantly uh using a vocal modulizer because she's taking like the the main speaker in the piece is representative of this patriarchal figure and that's why the modulator is there for her so she can take on this hyper patriarchal masculinist voice uh, and there's a, but, 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 you know, in the script, it says that it's a man who is speaking, uh, but, you know, for the actual sound play at the Western front in this tiny room with speakers surrounding everyone and the sort of role, the, it, the idea of it was that you would be in the middle, like there are some mm. benches to the side, but it was not her intention that you sit on the benches kind of behind the speakers. You were meant to be in the middle surrounded by these speakers. Uh, so does she interact with the audience, like, is there like a direct interaction? Not, not so. There will be in the final play, I think. Oh, but okay. for this, it was like so. There will be calls out to the audience, mm-hmm. and there will be not so much physical interaction, but definitely like the expectation that like breaking the fourth wall. Kind yeah, of yeah, moments. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but also within the context of the play, it is diegetic in the sense that it is like action within the play. So it's not just breaking the fourth wall because it is under the conception that like the audience is a part of the ritual that's happening mm. on stage. And and uh, the, the role she takes is sort of this uh, paroxysm of, like, you know, patriarch, but also judge and, like, medicinal professional. And there's a lot of connections between that idea of bloodletting in Ashura. And I'm probably getting a lot of this mixed up because there there's a lot of complexity here. And by no means am I a scholar on these terms, which I am talking about right now. But, but the con- conception of, like, bloodletting and how there is a whole medicinal discourse in the Islamic world around blood and around filth, and especially now with uh, the amount of refugees which are flooding out of Syria into Lebanon, how that is conceptualized through models of disease and models of bloodletting. So there's just a lot of like really, really complex sort of, well, not trains of thought, kind of like connections between ideas and again, like connections between figurative concepts and symbolic concepts and things which are happening on a real and political material level now. Uh, And also, of course, this overlaid with the incredible sound engineering and just the sonic power of the droning and the beats and how it is all encompassing within the context of the audience. And it was, it was a very powerful experience. And I really recommend you go and check out at least her, because again, the Sonic performance was a one-time thing, uh, but her exhibition is still open at the Western Front and it will be there until the 1st of August. So I really recommend people check that out. Right on, sounds like a powerful performance. And thank you, John, for telling us about it. Now, uh, Rohit is back and telling us about a few things uh, just to keep on your calendar. Yeah, so coming up, uh, you will be wanting to check out Art Song Lab. Uh, Art Song Lab is where poets, composers, and performers engage. Uh, it brings together 12 writers and 12 composers from across North America to collaborate with performers and bring their work to life. 
Right now, Art Song Lab is in the midst of a series of free performances, uh, workshops, and events at the Canadian Music Centre at 837 Davie Street. Tomorrow at 2.30, there is a workshop with Neil Wisner, who is a composer of the opera, opera uh, Stick Boy, adapted from the novel in verse by Shane Coison. Uh, Friday, the Art Song Lab collaborations will be launched at um, Payette Hall at 8 p.m. So if you want more information on the free events this week, check out artsonglab.com. And I, I understand there's yeah. uh, some congratulations to be... To yes, be actually, uh, congratulations to UBC alumni and poet Kayla Zaga. She has been published in The Walrus, uh, The Antagonish Review, uh, Room Magazine, and more for her fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. And uh, now uh, the Kitimat-born Vancouver-based writer can uh, add another accomplishment to her list, um, she is the recipient of the Gerard, Gerald Lampert Award, and uh, it was it's given to the first book of poetry, the best first book of poetry uh, for her book, For Your Safety, Please Hold On. Congratulations, Kayla. Uh, here is a video of Kayla Zaga reading a few of her poems. Um, yeah, and I guess we won't play the video because we're just... Ah, uh, yeah, that's true. We, we don't got the time we, for that we, this we time. We don't have the time. But um, but you can check out a few online if you look up her name and keep an eye out for her books. Now, really quickly, Jacob, just uh, do you want to tell us one or two things uh, that are that are happening? Yes, for sure. Uh, so even more items to keep uh, note of on your calendars. So uh, kicking off on June 4th, which I believe is tomorrow... Yes, and lasting all the way until September 26th of this amazing 2015 year. Um, Bard on the Beach, the Shakespeare Festival, uh, is coming back to Vanier Park. Uh, this year there will be four performances, uh, among which are uh, The Comedy of Errors, King Lear, um, Love Laborers, Lost, and uh, there's one other one, and the name escapes me. Oh no, it's called The Shakespeare's Rebel. Also upcoming is the TD Vancouver International Jazz Festival, which kicks off June 18th and lasts until July 1st. And so that's going to be happening all around the city, particularly um, centering in the Roundhouse, Yale Town area and David Lamb Park. Also, uh, the Leo Awards are coming back to Vancouver. And the Leo Awards are, um, of course, the awards which celebrate the excellence in British Columbia film and television industry. And so the key dates are... Uh, Saturday, Sunday um, of June 6th and June 14th. And finally, at the Art Gallery, uh, an upcoming exhibit entitled Of Heaven and Earth, 500 Years of Italian Painting from Glasgow Museums. And so this exhibit will have plenty of art from the Middle Ages all the way through the Renaissance and all the way through to the 19th century, featuring artists such as Giovanni Bellini, Sandro Botticelli, and so on. So... Make sure to mark those on your calendars and uh, have a great summer, everyone. All right. And, um, and just because we're running over time right now,